All right, uh, welcome back to the uh, Wokademia podcast. I'm very pleased to have Mark Perry here, a professor emeritus at University of Michigan and a senior fellow at AEI. Um, and he's the creator and editor of the Carpe Diem blog. And we're here to talk about his work uh, with the um, uh, Title IX and Title VI enforcement, uh, which you can find some description of now on uh, the heterodox stem uh, Substack where the title is, and I apologize, I have to read the title because it's rather long. Let's work together to challenge the selective double standard for the enforcement of Title VI and Title IX in higher education. And before we get started, we are supposed to begin our public events with a land acknowledgement. Um, I don't know, Mark, I don't know if you're familiar with the land acknowledgements, Mark. Well, I am, and I heard your uh, podcast with uh, Peter Bogosian, and, and know that you guys talked about that a little bit at the beginning after you read mine it. Mine has been evolving, and now, mm -hmm. given the state of the University of Texas, I fully support the idea of returning all lands at the University of Texas to whatever group will do something other than what we're doing. So that's <laughs> my current view on the land acknowledgement. Um, is that is that required for every, what, they every event? So we're in the Fifth Circuit, right? So they can't quite compel speech for us yet, is my understanding. But it's 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 requested. Nobody in the business school knows this exists. I'm the only person who even uh, knows oh. this exists. But it, everywhere else on campus, uh, this is getting adopted, and you're you're asked to put it in your syllabus. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, um, it's fun when you do it in front of certain groups of alumni, though. I'll just yeah. say that. Um, yeah, but yeah, no. If if you if you guys if someone can figure out how to give this back to somebody, I, go for it. So yeah. anyway, Mark, yeah. uh, you want to fill us in on what you've been doing with respect to Title Six and Title Nine? Yeah, well, you know, I've been kind of on this uh, one man mission for about the last three years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, after you know, spending more than two decades in higher education, I kind of started realizing um, what had been going on around me the whole time, but I hadn't really paid close attention. And that's just this systemic and uh, structural, um, you know, racism and sexism in terms of violating very important federal civil rights laws that everybody, you know, says in theory are very important. Title VI that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and color. And then that was supplemented in 1972, 50 years ago this year, uh, with Title IX, because women were not uh, originally protected as a class in the Title IX, uh, Title VI Act of 1964. So, so now for the last 50 years, women have been um, protected. And so what I've started to realize starting at my own university and looking around at other universities is that I would say almost every university in the country has at least one violation of Title IX or Title VI that might be in the form of um, a number of female-only scholarships that aren't available to men, female-only programs, female-only awards, female-only fellowships, um, Black-only housing dorms, um, women-only gym hours. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so really the, the first awareness I had where I thought, hey, something is wrong here is that when I was in Flint, Michigan, teaching at University of Michigan on Flint campus and not too far away from Michigan State in East Lansing, which is about 40, 50 miles away. I kept hearing occasionally about this women's lounge at Michigan State and couldn't really believe that that was still going on as just a blatant violation of Title IX. And when I checked around the country, I couldn't find any other examples 
of a women's only space in the middle of a college campus. And so I visited Michigan State and their big Michigan Union building right in the middle of campus. You walk in the front entrance and on the first floor, you know, prime real estate, not off on the edge of campus, prime real estate, an entire wing of the student union at Michigan State was set aside as a women only lounge that was off limits for half the campus or all the men on campus. And I think years ago, maybe it was common to have a women's lounge and a men's lounge, but over time, as women got more and more power and became more and more privileged, then, and, and as men, you know, started to be discriminated against, then they got rid of all the men's only lounges, but they kept at least this one at Michigan State it had been kind of a legacy of a past era. Um, and so I found that objectionable, not just because it was illegal, and a violation of Title IX, which says no person, not no female, but no person on the basis of spec shall be discriminated against or shall be excluded from or be denied benefits at an institution that accepts federal or really taxpayer funding. And so that was my kind of first awareness. And it was like, I think, a kind of a physical and symbolic representation of what goes on at every college that often is much less visible and it, and it sometimes can be very hidden and other times not so hidden. But so in this case, I thought, well, this can't, this is just objectionable for on many different levels. And so then I filed a civil rights complaint at the state level back then because I wasn't familiar at the time with how to file a complaint with the Office for Civil Rights, which is a division of the Department of Education at the federal level. And so as I was working my way through this complaint process, um, you know, Michigan State became aware that there was a pending civil rights um, action complaint against them. And then this was in the summer, I think, of 2016. And they had other Title IX problems as well with Larry Nassar and the gymnast program and all of that. And so they were under the watch of the federal government already for Title IX. And so I think they realized partly because of my complaint that they just couldn't justify this flagrant, obvious violation of Title IX. And so they and so what was interesting is they couldn't have just taken the sign off this outside of the women's lounge that had a history of how long it had been there and how much it had served the women on campus. They couldn't have just taken the sign down and said, this, this space is open for everybody now. That wouldn't have worked very well politically. So what they did is they closed it down for renovation and then they kind of restructured it or remodeled it, maybe added a men's bathroom, I'm not sure exactly. But then they could say in the fall when all the students returned to campus that this space had been you know, reconfigured and updated and remodeled and now it was open to all, all students on campus without any restrictions anymore, preferences. And so, you know, the women kind of uh, got a little bit upset and there was a lot of sit-ins and protests and demonstrations and petitions um, and because as Thomas Sowell said, that often if you've been receiving special treatment for long enough, that then you look at equal treatment as a form of discrimination. So that was kind of what was going on there. They had this special female privilege. And then when they had to give that up, they looked at it as a form of discrimination when really it was just, you know, complying with federal civil rights laws and having equal treatment. So anyway, so they obviously couldn't go back. And so that was kind of my first success. And so that then I turned, um, you know, my sights kind of on my own university and then realized, and I hadn't paid close attention, but every year I'd get an email from the provost um, saying that there were 12 faculty awards that we could apply for as faculty. 
And most of them were cash awards plus, plus teaching time release. So, you know, very valuable awards. And of the 12, I was ineligible for five because three were for female faculty only and two were for minority faculty only. However, they kind of vaguely defined that. It wasn't even clear what that meant, but probably black and Hispanic uh, faculty, but not Asians. I'm not quite sure, but, but anyway, so then I challenged those again internally and what I found out is that the Title IX office in Ann Arbor, which at that time had jurisdiction over all three campuses, they pretty quickly agreed with me that those were violations of federal civil rights laws. They were violations of state civil rights laws. They were a violation of University of Michigan's own very strong, you know, lofty statement of non-discrimination on campus. And also in, in the state of Michigan, as amended by um, a voter referendum in 2006, it violated the Michigan state constitution. So many, many different levels, it was, viol- it, you know, it was violating federal state civil rights laws, state constitution and Michigan's own you know, policy of non-discrimination. So they pretty much agreed with me. And then I started to realize that universities operate under a you know, system where even if they know it's illegal, I think they often just figure, well, no one's gonna complain or we'll just wait until somebody complains and then we'll change it if we have to, but maybe we can do a lot of good in the meantime, because then we can serve groups that they uh, you know, deem to be underrepresented or deserving, even though women are now overrepresented. But so, so they figure, I think often that either nobody will complain or even if somebody does complain, they'll then reluctantly make the changes. But what often happens, usually happens, even if it's at the federal level, there's never usually any fines or penalties or consequences. They don't have to apologize. So the consequences on the downside are kind of minimal. So they often, I think, figure that they'll just do it as long as possible. And <clears throat> if they get caught, then they'll make whatever changes are necessary to you know, satisfy the federal government or the state government. So anyway, so then I was able to have those five faculty awards change so that they're now even currently still uh, five years later, they're still open to all faculty. And then I started to realize that this was really a bigger problem. And that if I was recognizing at my own university, that it was obviously a problem everywhere else. Oh, and then right after that um, overturning of the scholarships for being discriminatory, then the science faculty on campus at the Flint campus of University of Michigan they came up with the great idea that they were gonna have a summer STEM camp for girls for like junior high or high school girls. And again, if you look around the country, almost every college campus, hundreds, thousands of college campuses, historically have had special STEM programs for girls or, and for women you know, at the undergrad and grad level and even at the teaching level. Um, but hundreds of schools around the country have special girl-only summer STEM camps or girl-only computer coding camps or math camps, physics camps. And so our faculty uh, decided they were gonna have this new program called GEMS, which was the Girls in Engineering, Math and Science. And it was gonna be some one week program in the summer of 2017. And what I found interesting is that by the time I found out about it as a faculty member, it was already a done deal that had been approved and they had flyers and dates and events. And, and so then, as you know, Richard, I mean, um, 
for new programs at a university, it goes through lots of layers of bureaucracy. And so I'm thinking that this started as a faculty idea and they would have had to get approval of their departments and their department chairs and their colleagues. Then it would have gone to the level of the dean and then the dean and the associate deans and assistant deans and executive committees. They would have all looked at it and approved it, <laughs> would have had some kind of budget and then um, would have gone up to the provost office and then the provost and associate provost and assistants to the associate provost and all the bureaucrats would have had to approve it. And then maybe it would have gone to the president or in our case, it would have been the chancellor. So I'm sure dozens of faculty and administrators and staff had seen this program because clearly discriminatory, clearly a violation of Title IX and <coughs> excuse me, also in Michigan, a violation of state law violation of the state constitution. And, and yet, I guess nobody ever even questioned the legality and the propriety of having a girl only summer STEM camp program. <laughs> Excuse me. So it, um, I challenged that program and was able to stop it right before the summer. And they made the, um, the, you know, people in charge of the program, they had to redesign it they left the name the same, but they stopped using G for girls. They just called it the GEMS program, but they didn't emphasize the G. But then they um, had to open it to all genders. And so, again, that program is continuing today uh, with all genders. Okay, so after you know that experience with the science program for girls only, again, and I'm sure the faculty on, on my campus have looked around the state and around the country and see that everybody else is doing this. So I think part of it is an unawareness on behalf of faculty and staff and administrators that they may, like in this case, they must have not even realized that that was a violation of federal civil rights laws. I think in some cases, and often they'll introduce new programs without checking with either the general counsel or the Title IX office to kind of make sure that this is legal. Um, so I think that's part of the problem is just an, an unawareness on college campuses on behalf of faculty and staff and administrators of really what Title IX is and what Title VI is and what the violations are. And then I think there's also another explanation is that sometimes universities know that there's legal problems with some of their programs. But as I mentioned before, that they just figure that either nobody's gonna complain, and that's been the case. So they've been able to just you know violate federal civil rights laws with impunity for decades because no one has complained until recently. And then again, as I mentioned, even if they get caught, often the consequences are fairly minimal. And so they figure they'll just do it as long as they can. And then if they get caught, they'll make changes. Do you know of any examples where anyone actually got a serious consequence of any form for breaking these federal laws? Um, no, um, I, I mean, there's never been a case that I've been involved with, you know, and I've filed now oh, almost 450 complaints, and that's resulted in over 200 federal investigations and over 100 resolutions. But I've, I'm never, I'm not aware of any case <clears throat> when there was ever a fine or, or a penalty or even an apology. You would think the university would have to apologize to the campus community for violating, in the case of female-only programs, they violated the civil rights of half of the campus community for years and years and years and decades. And so usually 
Um, as far as I know, yeah, there, there haven't ever been any, you know, real fines or penalties. It's just, they get caught. <clears throat> so then they make changes to the program. Usually either they'll terminate the program is one way if they can't get buy-in, if they've been operating a girls only STEM camp for 20 years, it's often hard to get the faculty and, uh, you know, the people who are the directors to all of a sudden change from a girl only program to a co-ed program. So sometimes that's a little bit of an issue and they just decide to terminate it. Or then in the case of a, you know, female only or girl only program, they'll convert it into a co-educational program and change the requirements so that it's uh, you know, clear that all genders are eligible. And often they'll, they, they really should change the name if the program name has the word women or girl in it. But often if that program has been established for decades, they'll allow the university to continue using a program name with the word girl or women in it. Um, if they can make clear on their marketing of the program that the public understands that this program now is, is open to everybody. And yeah. then usually Presumably they still want only certain types to apply. Um, that's certainly the impression I get from. Well, that's often the case is, and that's what, what we, um, we call a legal fig leaf where sometimes they'll pretend that it's open to everybody when in practice it's gonna to continue to operate as a women only or female only program. And, and one of the areas where the Office for Civil Rights I think has been complicit and has enabled universities to continue to discriminate is in the area of women's leadership programs. So I'm sure McCombs has one. Most top business schools have some kind of women's leadership certificate, women's leadership program, women's leadership initiative, women's leadership forum, where these are, you know, um, classes or programs or certificate programs for women's leadership issues. And they clearly have designed it for women. All of the professors are usually women. 100% of the participants have been women. And then when they get caught, then they'll make very minor cosmetic changes to the eligibility requirements. And then it'll say something like, this, this program is open to women or women, individuals who identify as female and their allies or something like that. They'll add allies as kind of a, so as a way to kind of pretend that they're going to include men. Instead of a gender test, you get a political test, which is great at public universities, huh? I mean, we now have one for hiring and promotion and all that. So, you know, not too surprising you'd have it for the pro, uh, for anything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they're, they're, they're often pretty cagey and disingenuous when they make these kind of minor changes to kind of pretend that the program is now open when it seems pretty obvious and clear that the program is going to continue as a program that will primarily or exclusively serve women. And then the only men that they're allowing to participate would be a man who wants to pay or his employer pay tuition so that he can go and learn about women's leadership issues, which really doesn't seem like that's really ever going to happen. So, so anyway, so sometimes there's those legal fig leaf, you know, dismissals or resolutions, but often it's a stronger, you know, resolution is when the university is required to really change the eligibility requirements, convert it from a girl only or female only program to a really true co-educational program that's open to everybody. 
and then even change the name of the program. They have to change the, the um, so sometimes the name of the program. They often have to report for a period of one or two or three years to the Office for Civil Rights, showing or demonstrating you know, how many students applied, how many students were accepted, what the gender breakdown was. So in some cases, they are required to really demonstrate over a period of two or three years that they have converted it into a co-educational program. So that's the best outcome, you know, from, from my standpoint, because <laughs> then it's really forcing a university to, you know, comply with Title IX and have a program that's open to, to everybody regardless of, of gender. So, so in, 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 the, in the process of doing all of this, have you gotten a lot of, uh, feedback, either positive or negative, and are you, you ever been concerned about any type of retaliation? I guess you're, you had tenure when you started this process, so uh, maybe, but, uh, you know, possibly just as what your experience was and what your advice would be for other people in, in a similar situation. Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. It's kind of interesting because the, the biggest um, kind of uh, negative reaction I had was with the women's lounge at Michigan State back in 2016, where they were very upset, um, maybe partly because of the rivalry between Michigan State and Michigan as well for sports, that some professor was coming over from Michigan and disturbing their, you know, quiet little women's study lounge and their student union. <clears throat> but, and I got a lot of bad, nasty kind of uh, phone calls and emails so, you know, I, I did kind of get a little bit attacked and a little tried to be canceled, I guess, on that, on that issue. But, but ever since then, um, you know, I really have expected to have been a lot more a target for, you know, attacks. Um, like, for example, um, last May, um, you know, after George Floyd, <clears throat> which happened just about, you know, six miles from where I'm at right now, in Minneapolis, um, you know, his, one of his, I guess his main funeral service was in downtown Minneapolis at North Central University, which is kind of a small Christian college in, near down on the edge of downtown Minneapolis. And so the president of North Central University, I think spoke at the memorial service and said that he was creating a George Floyd Memorial Scholarship for black students at his university. And he challenged every other university in the country to follow that model and have a George Floyd Memorial Scholarship for black students at every university in the country. And so some universities did that, uh, including four or five around here, including the University of Minnesota, uh, a couple other smaller colleges, one called Bethel College, one called St. Catharines. Um, and so um, I filed a series of Title VI complaints against the George Floyd Memorial Scholarships in the Twin Cities area at five or six different colleges and universities in this area. And then I fed it to the one of the reporters, the higher education reporter at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And he, he picked up on it and, and wrote a nice report on it. It was very balanced, just kind of stating the facts of what I was doing. And it was on the front page of the St. Paul paper. And then I thought I'd have to go into... Uh, hiding or get a disguise or something because I thought that would be so controversial to challenge George Floyd Memorial Scholarships in the Twin Cities that I would just get all sorts of emails and phone calls. But, and, but to my surprise, everybody supported me in terms of at least the comments in the paper. 
like it was like 10 to one in support of what I was saying. And so I think, you know, kind of the average person outside of academia understands that racial discrimination is wrong and gender or sex discrimination is wrong. So I think once, you know, we get out of the academic bubble out into the real world, I think that that's where, you know, I've gotten pretty much strong support. It's, it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that this country is actually filled with reasonably sensible people if you're not at a university. And the sort of people who think racial discrimination is really, really great as long as it goes in one particular way is pretty much entirely confined to universities at this point, it's, it almost seems. But yet somehow we, we, we keep at it. Well, and that's where, yeah, so maybe, you know, in St. Paul paper, I think, that, I mean, they're known to be a little on the conservative side compared to Minneapolis, but not really. And so that's where I was surprised to see such a strong support for my position. <laughs> and um, so I was a little bit surprised. And then, <clears throat> you know, I had thought that I would have gotten attacked a lot more strongly or more frequently by the feminists, because I'm really challenging their, you know, position that they have now, which is really, they have female privilege in higher education, as you know. And they have a lot of power and they have a lot of um, preferences now in terms of all sorts of different programs. But I just was surprised that I just don't get attacked. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's just they don't want to give me any attention. They just don't want to have give me any oxygen on the topic or whether they really don't have a good comeback. Because, I mean, what's going to be the counter argument? I mean, they're not really going to be able to say, well, we like Title IX, but only when it benefits us. But we don't like it when it discriminates against men. We think it's, it should be no woman on the basis of sex, not no person on the basis of sex. So it might also be that they have no really intellectually defensible position to criticize what I'm doing, because all I'm saying is that we have Title IX that protects men and women, and now actually all gender identities, um, and that it should be applied uniformly and without selectivity and without a double standard. And so then it's kind of hard to object to somebody who's just saying that they want federal civil rights laws to be applied uniformly and that, they, that everybody's civil rights should be protected regardless of sex or, or gender. So maybe that could be part of it too, but I haven't been canceled and haven't really been the target of too much uh, vitriol or, or hate. So, so I've been kind of surprised. I know that, you know, when you're thinking about internal complaints, what I've noticed, is like, at least at UT, if you want to do internal complaints, that more and more places, those seem to go straight through something like a diversity, equity, and inclusion office, which are becoming increasingly staffed with people who sort of pretty explicitly reject the idea of the rule of law or uh, balanced institutions. Uh, are you, do you find that the internal offices tend to be less and less useful or never really that useful? But what I've found is that, I mean, yeah, like you've got, of course, the Title IX office, which is supposed to be, you know, uh, the compliance uh, division for the university to make sure they comply with Title IX as it applies to athletics and sexual harassment, sexual discrimination and so on. Um, and so that's often, you know, their jurisdiction is Title IX complaints. But what I've found is it's sometimes more effective to either bypass the Title IX office or include the Office of General Counsel or the university's legal office, because they're the ones that are the lawyers and know the law and know what's legal and what's not legal. And they're trying to protect the university from legal liability, whereas the Title IX officers often are not trained as much in, in terms of legal background. 
And so in some cases I've found, yeah, if you're dealing with the office of general counsel, they're the ones that are a little more sensible and reasonable and not quite as, you know, politically motivated or biased as the title nine office is. And so, so that's where often those two working together, I think sometimes, um, the general counsel office can provide legal counsel to the title nine office to make sure that the university is in compliance because, you know, it's a very serious situation that the, if the university was ever to be found to really be in really violation of title nine, their federal funding could be in jeopardy. And the federal funding includes Pell grants for all the students that get Pell grants, um, federally insured student loans, which really is quite a few students and then the research grants. And so if the university ever was putting their federal funding in jeopardy, it would be a very serious situation. And that's where I think you get a little more sympathy from the lawyers at the university than the Title IX officers. And so- Well, then on that night, have you noticed much of a shift as the administration changed and an administration that would sort of clearly would prefer not to be, in, you know, the current administration, I think would say to say they would prefer to only enforce these rules in one direction. So it, do you have a sense that it's getting harder to get things or maybe universities are getting less concerned about violations or is the Office of Civil Rights playing it kind of on the level? Well, yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I felt like under um, the Trump administration, when um, Ken Marcus was in charge of the Office for Civil Rights, I felt like he supported what I was doing and maybe couldn't always show it, you know, directly, but I felt I was getting some support from the top in terms of my, you know, advocacy for, you know, so uh, for the uniform enforcement of, of Title IX. <clears throat> so what, what happens, of course, is now there's been a change uh, in administration. And so it seems like they're a little less sympathetic at the top, but then the way the Title IX office uh, uh, complaints work, you know, there's 12 offices for civil rights around the country. There's 12 regions um, and they're staffed often by career attorneys and Title IX specialists and investigators. So they don't really change, you know, when the administration changes. So you're dealing with a lot of the same people. So if those people are honest and are doing their job and tried just trying to enforce Title IX the way they're supposed to, then they may not always, you know, might not matter to them who's at the top in terms of in charge of the Office for Civil Rights or who's in the White House. But the one thing that has changed, and I think this is a direct result of the new administration being less sympathetic, even though Biden came out with a very strong statement last year, executive order, all students are guaranteed under my administration to have an educational experience free from sex discrimination. The Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, said the same thing in a statement that, that he issued last uh, summer that, you know, Title IX was important law and uh, supposed to protect the civil rights of, of all students. But what's changed in terms of the day-to-day -day operation, the way I interact with Office for Civil Rights and dealing with all of these complaints, is that they've started a new strategy, which is a little bit disturbing and disappointing because in, in the past, the, the way that they evaluate a Title IX allegation by looking at the university's website, looking at the way they market the program. And usually because it's not a lawsuit that you don't 
need what's called legal standing because it's not as if I'm suing for damages or suing on behalf of someone. It's not a lawsuit. It's a complaint saying that this university, you know, certifies to the Department of Education every year that they're enforcing Title IX, but it's a false certification because they're really not enforcing Title IX in Title VI. And so it's just trying to hold universities accountable for their legal responsibility. But what they've been doing lately is I'll file a complaint and then they'll evaluate it for a while. And then eventually they either have to dismiss it because there's not enough, um, you know, there's not enough there for not enough evidence of a violation or the program's uh, too old or it's been discontinued. But then, but normally I try to check all that so that then eventually they'll have to open it for investigation. And then once the, in fact, I just got an email today. So once an investigation is open, what they've been doing lately is then they'll send me um, an email. And let's see if I can find this one that I just got today from one of the Title IX officers. Um, and it's a complaint I made against the University of West, or, or West Virginia University where I allege that they have a program that um, is only for students of color. So then they'll send me a, an email following up on my complaint and then they'll say, are you aware of any specific instances of students being unable to participate in the M power program because they were not perceived to be a person of color? Please provide OCR with as much information as you have about any such incident including any documentation you might have. And then often they'll ask me for, you know, names, basically what they're asking for is if I have any names of actual victims, which usually don't exist because if the program clearly says this program is only for students of color or this program is only for women of color or the program is only for women or only for girls, then you're not gonna be finding boys or men that are gonna apply for programs for which they're clearly not eligible for. Um, cause it would just be an exercise in futility and often like for, let's say a summer STEM program, you have to, um, there might be an application fee. You might have to get a letter of recommendation from one of your high school teachers or counselors or a coach. You have to write a statement of interest. I mean, often there's a lot of time involved with applying for a program. And if it says this is the girls summer STEM program, it's for high school girls only then boys are not gonna to bother to apply for a program for which they're clearly not eligible for. And so then there aren't any of these, these are phantom victims if there aren't gonna be any victims. And then they don't always use that as the only reason for a dismissal, but then often in their final report, even if the university does change, make some changes, then they'll use that in their letter of dismissal or resolution letter saying that the complainant, <clears throat> me, wasn't able to identify anybody who had ever been excluded from this program on the basis of sex or something. So they've kind of moved into a new area, a new world where they are kind of moving towards legal standing. Now that could be okay as if they're saying, well, if anybody was denied admission to this program and excluded on the basis of race or sex, then they might be able to be, have redress or have some kind of, you know, um, uh, compensation or something. But I think usually what they're looking for is just saying, well, we know this program discriminates, but if the complainant can't provide any specific examples and provide names and dates and contact information, then we're going to use that as at least part of the reason to dismiss a complaint 
And so and that's what you ignore the fact that the president is now certifying compliance with Title VI and Title IX and blatantly lying, and we know it, but we're not going to do anything about that either. Yeah. 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 So it'd be nice if the rule of law still applied in the U.S., wouldn't it? I'm, uh, yeah, I know. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so you know, it's always a mix of different lawyers get assigned the cases. I've had some that I felt were honest. Some schools are pretty honest where they get caught and they say, yeah, we really changed this. But then you've got a lot of, um, you know, the Office for Civil Rights often they have thumbs on the scale and their thumbs have gotten bigger in the last year, I think, <laughs> under under Brandon. So that's been a little bit of a challenge, but still, you know, the, the Title IX is very clear law and the violations that I've identified are very clear violations. And so it seems like it should be pretty easy to, to be able to, you know, kind of process these complaints, evaluate them, investigate, and then um, have the universities make the changes that are necessary to comply with Title IX and Title VI. Well, Mark, thanks very much for coming on and thanks for all your work. It's good. We, you know, we, I've had a lot of guests on talking about all the problems we have at university. So it's nice where we get to talk to someone who's at least doing his very best to fix them. So thanks so much, Mark. Yeah, you know, it, it has been kind of rewarding in the sense that, you know, you can write a lot of articles and op-eds, but I feel like, you know, I've taken on a mission where it really has allowed me to be able to say after two or three years, hey, you know, I think I really have made a difference. I've, I've had at least over 100 universities and colleges that have had to change programs that they never would have changed without the complaints that I've filed. So it does seem rewarding in the sense that most of the time, if I feel like I can be making a difference and bringing about concrete changes towards a better world that where the civil rights of all students and faculty and staff are protected and not just certain preferred groups. Well, thanks again to Mark Perry, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Richard.